Welcome to part two of the interview I conducted with Michael Kilgariff. The first episode ended on a cliffhanger. Did Michael want chocolate or cinnamon on his cappuccino? And now, the conclusion. Thank you. Uh, where are we? Uh, the costume. Oh yes. It's extremely heavy. I was unsighted, and when I did fall over, I constantly did. Especially when we were outside. We filmed it in uh, the pre-filming. Was done in uh, outside Evesham. It was a big uh, estate there and a big old house that the, the then had for the, uh, it was the, the engineering yeah, quarters. Yeah, right, it was a BBC property, wasn't it? Tra- training, training. They've sold it now, I think it's, it's a hotel or something now. But, um, so outside on this mound, I remember, oh, yeah, kept falling over, kept being cut, you know, <laughs> inside and scraped with all these nuts and bolts inside, and uh, they padded it up, I think it was. And, so, and the thing about your dresses is, you see, if you have a costume like this, you have a dresser who's with you all the time. Well, their job is to make sure that you are ready when the director wants you. So they tend to get you ready far too soon, you know, because if you're not ready, they get it in the neck. So obviously they want to avoid that. So uh, they, 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 my dress was, come on, let's get you in it then, put the top on and these, these great claws. Say, no, 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 they won't be with me for hours yet. Don't you see, coming up to you now, get me back. So <laughs> I, I, I had it on far more than I needed. And in fact, they made, when we got into the studio, the, uh, it had been recognised it was really too much to wear all day. And they made a little mock-up which was much lighter and thinner, but just to get the, the proportions right for the cameras, to line up the cameras. <clears throat> and I remember then when I did put the full costume on, I was standing there in the lights, you know, sweating away. I developed, because I did a lot of these scenes on stage and in television, not just for Doctor Who, being very tall, being inside things. And the thing is that once your face disappears, people forget there's actually a person there. And so I developed a kind of yoga thing where I could try and switch off, you know. Because so I remember crashing to the floor in, um, in Tomb. I'd been electrocuted at the door. And as I went crashing to the floor, suddenly all the lights went out and everybody disappeared. Because it was four o'clock. Electricians' yeah, union no, tea break, <laughs> and they all went and left me, and I couldn't get up on my own. I had to shout for help. And they just disappeared. They don't realise there's anybody there. And I remember again the two men being in the uh, in the studio, and I couldn't say a rude word here. Is that all right? And the director came in, and I'd been standing there, you know, in, in this ton ton of aluminium. And just sort of to be nice, and very, rather casually, he said, Are you all right in there, Michael? He said, and started to walk away. I said, what are your f***ing What a stupid f***ing question. <laughs> Shrieks of mirth, of course, from everybody. But uh, 
I thought, no, no, it's... <laughs> well, I can't it could have taken the top off, you know, <laughs> just, just the top off, give me a bit of air. But, uh, so that was the, the robot, and, and it did... Um, I know my daughter... It happened that when, when it was shown on television, I was away, I think that was over, must have been winter, I was, I was out of London in, doing a panto somewhere up in Scotland, I think, I did quite a few up there. Just say like an Englishman playing the villain in Scotland. <laughs> uh, but, um, and then, of course, she caught my my daughter was then only about four. She caught a glimpse of me in it. My wife actually obviously wanted to watch it. And when she saw me with these claws, these enormous, she screamed and roared and wouldn't wouldn't have it. And she she was frightened I was going to come home like it. So, so not only would she not watch it herself, but she wouldn't let my wife watch it. Her mother she had to switch the telly off. She couldn't know. Wouldn't have it on in the house. <laughs> so, so uh, it's a lovely part. You well, know. And of course, it's Tom Baker's. It was his, his first. Yes, I always think Tom wasn't well directed in that. When when the uh, when the um, when the robot was destroyed, he discovered this this material. You know, that sort of um, was, was like. Um, a virus, mm. a metal virus, and it destroyed the robot who'd grown to about a hundred feet and was going to take over the world. <laughs> but he killed it. And then, as as I began to disintegrate, he was in a, a jeep. I seem to remember being driven, uh, and he was all triumphant and those great big teeth, that big smile, wonderful. But in fact, he was rather pathetic before a robot because mm. he. He didn't know he was a menace, you know, like, like any wild animal. They just tried to exist, and it was really rather sad. And the only one that really was sad for him and felt for him was, was Liz Slade and Sarah Jane. And I thought Tom should have been calmed down on that, the way it's... Uh, however, it's done out of sequence, you know, these things. But that's why the director, I felt, should have been aware of that. Perhaps on two versions of it, to see which... Was see which fitted. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I remember when I, um, yes, we had a good time in the hotel because we were all in the same hotel. There was a piano in the, in the, and we were the only ones there, I think, so we could make a nuisance of ourselves. There was a piano in the lounge, and uh, I, I played one evening, so we had sing-alongs. You know, Tom loved that, of course, sing-alongs. That was fun. But um, then I took Liz home because, as chance would have it, uh, she lived near, quite near me in London. She and her husband were, uh, so I was able to take her home, and that night, I remember, I, uh, I had terrible nightmares about being trapped in a midget submarine, you know, couldn't get out of it, claustrophobic, which of course was, you know, having had a week inside this thing. Mm. And the next morning, it was even more frightening, I, I woke up, uh, oh, thank God for that, and I got out of bed and my legs just collapsed. Wouldn't, wouldn't hold me, I couldn't stand. My wife was obviously very concerned, wanted to ring for the doctor. I said, no, I think I'll be all right. I said, it'll wear off. And by lunchtime it had, and I was okay. But that's, that really got to me, that one, more than any other. And I still had the, uh, the studio work to do. That was the bad news. The good news was that during the making of it, the filming and the, uh, the studio work, I ran into two strikes, two BBC strikes, one was a prop men, uh, women as a prop people, so that delayed it. And the other was pseudo managers. 
So I ran into so that delayed it. So although I was I was engaged for four episodes, because of the delays, I was actually paid for ten. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes. So that was interesting. Yes, because um, actually Blue Peter was um, that it was presented from the Doctor Who set because they wouldn't strike oh, they wouldn't the strike. set. So Blue Peter is in Doctor Who's laboratory that, that week. <laughs> Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's my, uh, that's my Doctor Who. Uh, since then, of course, I've done no end of uh, conferences. And uh, but what what I find interesting about the conferences is that the people who attend them are mostly youngsters. When I say youngsters, I mean twenties, thirties, perhaps forties. But they. They are all uh, fixated on the the older Doctor Who's. Then when uh, Michael Grade axed it, and it was off air for what, 12 years, 14, 16, 16 years. Uh, but they still, you would think they, they, they'd be more interested than the new generation, would be more interested in in the, in the new Doctor because they're so much better, I mean, technically. I've watched one and I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. It was all these thousands of Daleks being released from a spaceship and, and going around the Earth and then landing on Earth. I mean, it was amazing the, the kind of effects that um, when I started uh, with Tomb, you only got in, in major Hollywood musicals mm. you know, where they spent hundreds of thousands. Well, not musicals, I mean films. Mm. But, uh, and in fact, when I look back, I saw Tomb again not that long ago. And I felt the plot, the script was very good and the performances were excellent. But the special effects, oh dear, really. <laughs> I mean, pulling at these levers. And well, you, you, turn in, you turn into a dummy just before oh, you get thrown again. Oh, that one. And you, you could, there's another, was it me or somebody else? On wire, you could see the wire. Yeah, it's Roy Stewart gets lifted up by a sign and, yes. and he's on a harness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You could and see that's that. a filmed shot as well. <laughs> and, and yet... You can see the harness. Yeah. Yes, and there were those things, cybernauts, cybermats. Yeah. I mean, they were they were really comical, but uh, at the time, you know, you said because that's the way things were. Absolutely. Yeah. But as interesting because we talked about the fact you've been to conventions and I interviewed you on stage at the fiftieth. It was you, Julian Glover, and was it Stephen Thorne? I think was it. Or Gabriel Wolf. Gabriel Wolf. You, Steve, you, yes. Julian. So we were, yeah, the 50th, which obviously was the, the apex of... Um, oh, we thought it's... Um, at the XL. XL, yeah. yes. Oh, yes, I remember. So, but you are a, a, a fan yourself, but of, of musical and yes. books about it. So, so I, it's interesting. We all know um, our own zeal for, for Doctor Who, but what about your own passion, therefore? How, do, how, how did that uh, manifest itself? And what was it particularly about musicals that you think grabbed you and made you want to I, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly. When I was a boy and, and, and the, doing the piano, and about 10 or 11, we had in the music stool some old music. And I looked through, and one was a book of music hall songs. Well, I knew a little about music hall because when I was a, a lad during the war, I think, or maybe it after, there'd been a series on radio <coughs> called Music Hall or something like that. But that was, and it had a chairman, <coughs> and, <coughs> excuse me, 
<coughs> and a lot of the old songs. So I was aware of uh, of the genre, so to speak. But then this book of songs, and I started playing them. Uh, and there was who we with last night, who were you with last night? And I thought it was jolly, very jolly. And there was one particular. It sounds a silly thing to say because I was not more than about 10 or 11. But at the very end of it, it goes, who were you with last night? Who were you with last night? Are you going to tell your missus when you get... And uh, the chord on that, are you going to tell your... It's actually technically a B seventh second inversion, which I hope the musicians listening will understand that. But there was something about that chord that just struck a chord, as they say with me, at the age of 10 or 11. It's a chord that you do find, you know, in classical work, and it just did something for me, and I was hooked, really, on that sort of music. Uh, really through that one chord. It's strange, isn't it, how things can affect you. And then, of course, as I said, trad came in, I enjoyed that. So music, um, music hall, and I found it suited me as a performer. Uh, because I'm a very tall chap with a deep voice, rather pompous manner, which um, was perfect for the music hall chairman, and I found telling jokes and bouncing off the audience. I even did a juggling act. Oh. I did it because the chairman always had to do an act at the players, at the, um, the Green Man where I started at the pub in Greenwich. And I didn't really have an act, but I did have some clubs. Because my father had a great friend who was a clown, and, and he taught me to juggle, and I had these clubs, so I... I couldn't juggle very well, but I put some dirty jokes in with it. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I give you a demonstration of the ancient and noble art of juggling. Now, I can either juggle with my clubs or my balls. Which would you prefer? Because they'd all shout balls. I'd make up balls. Right. Clubs it is. <laughs> so I do a little bit of nonsense with clubs. That was the act. It was really the pattern more than the so with all that sort of thing, and then playing my lovely musical songs as well, that, um, that, that stood me in very good stead. But I do wonder, I've written a lot about it, I've published books and produced, and whether I haven't spent too much of my career on something that is essentially trivial. <laughs> no, my great passion for many years has been uh, the actor, the Victorian actor, Sir Henry Irving. I was a founder member of the Irving Society 20 years ago, nearly 20 years. And I was the secretary for many years and edited the magazine. Because my passion for Irving goes back many years, long before the society was formed. And I found a portrait of him in Paddington Market, which I bought and I still have in my study. Big, big um, charcoal, charcoal drawing of him. Uh, and also, I remember this show how far back it went, many years ago. When, I dreamt that I joined a rep company, and it was the first day, and we were all in the stalls there, meeting for the first time, and in the corner, uh, sitting all away from us on its own, was this old, old variety, old um, character actor, and he was sitting apart from us. And I looked at him, and I, I thought, gosh, that's Irving, in my dream. But the dreadful thing was that in my dream, I was the only one that recognised him. Because <laughs> young actors, they don't want to know about history yeah. of their own profession. They know it all now, know too much. I was dreading this. 
with the writing, the thing that um, I've written a number of books. And, but the first thing I did, I wrote that of any significance <coughs> was uh, was I did a radio version in eight episodes of The Hobbit. Now this was again back in the sixties when it wasn't. It was just beginning the the great triumph uh, and excitement about the whole Hobbit thing and you know was. Um, was beginning to happen, just beginning. Is that the one that Harold Carvick was in? Yes, yes. And I went to uh, the head of um, the script department, radio script drama, <clears throat> and said, how about you know, The Hobbit? Well, uh, as chance would have it, nobody else had suggested it. And so Richard Imerson, it was then, the late Richard Imerson, he very kindly said, well, OK, yes, I think we could, we could take that. But he said, as you've written nothing for us before, <clears throat> I'd like you to write two sample episodes. <clears throat> Let us know how many episodes you think it'll need. And so write two, two sample episodes, which I can't offer you any money, and, uh, and a treatment of the rest of it. So I thought, fair enough. So I did that. And he accepted it. And so I wrote the rest of it. And it was done. Unfortunately, I couldn't be in it myself. I was there the beginning of the recording but uh, I was elsewhere doing other things uh, so I couldn't be in it all I wasn't in it at all uh, and um, that has been hugely successful because they did it and then repeated it and then of course with the films Lord of the Rings that again raised they, started, they put it out on cassettes and then they put it out on DVDs and uh, so only oh, yeah, CDs rather CDs it's been very successful I still I have the cassette. Have You've got the old cassette, yeah. yeah. But the wonderful thing was the producer, oh, John, John, oh, I really ought to remember his name. But the producer, the great thing was the producer decided <clears throat> that because it was technically so difficult to get all the effects and the atmosphere, that he needed two days for each episode, and normally a half hour was one day. So it meant really, it virtually doubled the cost of the production. But he insisted on it, in, and he had actually been a pupil of Tolkien's at university, so he doing. And I'm happy to say that the dear old department, they accepted this, this uh, necessity for extra studio time, and they, so every episode had two, two days on funny because I, I do a thing where I've been going through old spotlights and taking photos of actors that played Doctor Who monsters and just putting them online and going, so that's what they look like then, you know, the face yeah. behind the mask. And Heron Carvick does not advertise in spotlights. He was obviously such a radio-heavy actor that he didn't... So, so I've never found a photo of Heron Carvick because he just seemed to do radio all the time. But he was originally... Yes, I did a lot of radio with him. He was originally a stage manager. And um, he married... Oh, I mean, I always... He married a woman much younger than himself, who was from the, the Terry family. She was a niece of Ellen Terry, Phyllis Nielsen Terry, who actually played my mother in uh, a television thing I did. Once the only first woman I've ever known, she it was very hot summer, and she came to rehearsal in uh, in a lovely flowered dress, 
and a matching hat and a parasol. So she was going to a garden party at the palace, you know. My dear old Heron, yes, he was, um, he was a very nice man, actually, and a very keen gardener. He was always talking about his garden. But she was a lot younger, and I know he didn't go down at all well with the family, because he was then he was a stage manager. So. <laughs> Wasn't even a proper artiste. <laughs> <laughs> you, you also have an association with um, Jim Henson's uh, work. You, know, you did the Dark Crystal, and then you did the Storyteller. And... Yes, yes, I did quite a few bits for Jim Henson, and um, he again was one of the most wonderful men I ever knew. Absolutely loved working for him. Loved him as a man. He was. Uh, I still mourn him, actually. He's another one who died very suddenly in New York, and he died with David in a week. What was, what was he? He, he, he died, in, I think he died of pneumonia, but it was, was related it? to something else. Yes, Because yeah. he, yeah. he, he seemed so fit, you know, he was a tall, outst uh, upstanding, good-looking good man. But he was, um, he was terribly, terribly fussy. But you didn't mind. You didn't get irritated with him, you know, because he... He was such a nice personality, and you wanted to get it right for him. But I did have a nasty one with... Uh, I, I, I went along to... Yes, and they started doing uh, uh, a Dark Crystal. And uh, I went along to audition for the, the general of the Skeksis, the, the, the baddie, the chief baddie, which hadn't been cast at all. And in fact, he was looking for voices. And I, uh, I did this harsh scraping voice and I'm very loud, very noisy, very aggressive and he loved that so I got the part the trouble was I got a lot of stick from other actors who did other sketches because they all had to do it like me <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the voice nobody could do more than half a day <laughs> except me, I was the only one they could do a full day on them because it was so harsh but there was a moment in it where I don't know if you remember the scene. The Skeksis are all having this terrible feast, and there's music playing, and everybody's shrieking and yelling, and they're eating awful live things <laughs> running across the table like a, a mouse, and they pick it up and scrunch it. Uh, it was pretty vile. Uh, and at one point in it, I had to dip my and I had a long sort of beak into a bowl and then come up out of this bowl of water just to clean off the beak and the face and go Now, when I saw this, because you, you're in the studio on a big screen and they show it you and then you do it and I thought, oh god, this is going to be difficult because when, you, when I came out of the bowl they put a real bowl in front of me water, when you came out of it because you've got water in your eyes you can't see the screen so to do this it's more by luck than judgment, really, but I've watched it a couple of times and so I got the timing right. And as chance would happen, Jim wasn't there that day. I was being directed by somebody else. And so I watched, I looked at the screen and he started going down into the water. I went down into the bowl and I came up and I went... And then cut and we I wiped my eyes and we watched it and it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. I thought, oh, thank God for that, because, you know, you could spend a long time doing this. Uh, so that, I was thrilled with that. 
Well then, two or three weeks later, I was back in the studio. It was up in Elstree. And this time, Jim was back. And we were carried on. And he said, oh, before we uh, go any further, he said, there's just a bit I want to do again. And it was this bloody scene again, with the face in the water. And I said, oh, I thought it was fine. He said, oh, yes, the, uh, the, the, it's just, he said, after you'd all done that, he said, there's a little movement of the beak, very small. He said, I'd just like you to do something or something to cover that. So, of course, I had to do it all again. And this time, I wasn't as clever as I had been the first time. And I was soaked. I did it over and over and over again to get this ball. <laughs> so that really was a heavy, heavy occasion. So, time goes by. And I go to see the finished film. I couldn't go to the premiere. Again, I was out of London. My wife and daughter went. I did see it in a cinema, I think. So, of course, for me, the entire film, I'm waiting for this big moment, <laughs> bringing the beak out the water, and then... And we got to it, and there's so much noise going on, you couldn't hear it anyway. Because <laughs> everybody's... When you record, because you're the only person there, there's no music, there's no background noise, no other actors... So when they play it back, it seems quite significant. But when there's 40 other people all shrieking in, and a band playing and all this, it's all still... I didn't, I didn't mind, because it was for Jim, and I loved it. <laughs> you were in and it's the first episode of a, a famous BBC, now seen as a bit of a folly, The Borgias. So, I mean, at the time, were, were, were you aware that there was a, a, a turkey on hand? Well... No, no, I wasn't aware that it was as bad as it was because nothing worked in it at all. I mean, even the art, you know, the filming stuff, it all. I don't know what happened with that. It was a shame because they spent a lot of money on it and it should have been up the BBC street, really. But uh, it just, I don't know. But the, the, the one thing we did all know and had been a terrible mistake was the guy who played the, the principal Borgia became Pope. Adolfo Celi. Adolfo Celi. The reason he got the part was they'd seen him in a Bond film, and he played a Bond film. Yeah. But what they didn't know was that he'd been dubbed. <laughs> he'd been dubbed by Robert Rietti. Right, yeah. Rietti, who did everything, of course, Rietti. And, uh, and, of course, his accent was appalling. I remember I, I was in the scene with him in, in the Sistine Chapel, and he had the line, we, uh, when we, we'd elected him, we are Pope. We take the name, oh, what was it, somebody the, somebody the sixth, take the name. Anyway, it was, it was so heavy, you know, we are the Pope. We take the name, Julian, whatever it was, the sixth. <laughs> uh, but, of course, it was too late by then. They, <laughs> they, they got him. Yes, that was dreadful. So, um... Well, I've taken up far more of your time than I said I would. So, outside of you know, the things you often always get asked about, what have, what have been the, the, the highlights for you that stand out of, uh, of your career till now? Um, well, I suppose doing my first pantomime at London Palladium was pretty exciting. I've done did another two after that uh, with different stars, um, but that first one was really very exciting. It was under the old guard. It had all changed. By the time I went back, it wasn't. It wasn't so. Uh, wasn't so good. 
the direction and everything and the stars just didn't take it seriously you know, like a lot of do with Panto they just take the mickey out of it and they won't take it seriously as a plot show I remember being in one Panto and or a couple of comics in it and they wanted to put in an extra gag and right at the beginning and the producer said or the director said no look we, you've got this gag get you on stage but now we've got to get on with the plot and one of them threw his script down and said we were engaged as comics not actors you know, that was, and I thought, well, no, actually, you're engaged as actors. It's a plot show. Yeah, no, yeah, it's not yeah. a sketch. It's not a ten-minute seaside sketch. So a lot of were like that, particularly, oh, dear, Daniel Arul was dreadful. Dreadful. And Panto, he had nothing for children at all. It was all his old club blue blue gags, you know, dreadful. Uh, however, the first one was, was amazing, yes. Uh, other things. Uh, oh, I yes, that was that was pretty interesting too. An interesting job. I did a farce for Brian Ricks. You know, the top. He was the king of farces, really, for 30, 40 mm. years. He's still with us. I think he's about ninety now. And that was very interesting, seeing how it worked. You know, from from the very first day's rehearsal. We did three or four weeks on the road and then into town. And it got tremendous reviews. It was very, very well received. But his day had passed and he lost money at the, at the Gaelic. We only lasted about six months. And then we went on tour again in the summer for 16 weeks and packed out everywhere in the provinces. <laughs> but in London, he was, he was considered passé of fashion. So I don't know what at all. Professionally, oh, it's difficult to pick anything. One thing out really that uh, I have a daughter. The birth of my daughter that was pretty exciting. She's got her own daughter now, <laughs> six-year-old. Well, and the name, the the, the name, because uh, uh, when we spoke on the phone, you know, you very kindly asked how to pronounce my name. Yeah. But united by unusual names. So, what is the provenance of Kilgariff? Irish, Irish. It's a place called Kilgariff in Western. I've never been there. But um, I presume that was where we came from. I mean, I was born in Brighton, as I've said. My father was born in Brighton. My grandfather was born in Oldham. And his father, I think, uh, according to the family, that he, he came from Ireland. He was the last native of Ireland. Extraordinary thing. A very weird one. I've never quite known how to, how to really uh, what to think of it. But when my grandfather was born... Now, there's only two generations above me in Oldham, in this country. We still have public hanging. It's a very strange one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Outside, I mean, they had, had them in Manchester, public hangings so. there. In London, it was outside Newgate. Because Tyburn, there hadn't been hangings in Tyburn since uh, 1783. But, yeah, still public hangings when he was born. Strange, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Another world, but yet only a, a touch, yeah, touch away. Yeah. Look, I've taken up far too much of your time, so I'll ask you the last two questions. The first of which is, because as the listeners must, I now know they haven't paid for this, nor have we been paid for this, <laughs> so we ask yeah. them to donate to a charity which is of your choice. Well, being an actor, it's got to be the, the ABF, the Actors Benevolent Fund, which I, uh, I, I have um, I contribute uh, regularly to myself by direct debit, but... Uh, if people could um, send them uh, a few pounds, it would be 
very gratefully received. So they do a wonderful job. They uh, they support a lot of a lot of people uh, you know who fall on hard times or had illness or all sorts of problems. And I have uh, I have great respect for the ABF. And uh, I will uh, direct them there in my outro. And the final question is: This podcast was nominally conceived to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. It's now 52 years of Doctor yeah. Who. So, what's your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Oh well, what's my message? Well, um, as long as you enjoy it, keep you know, keep coming along to the conventions. Keep, um, but also I think see if you can turn their attention a little more to the to the more recent Doctor Who's. You know, <laughs> keep that guy. I know there was that sixteen year gap. It seems a shame that um, there was so much concentration on the older ones, and they don't seem to be at all interested in the uh, in the new ones. Which, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed them immensely. Uh, and the, the, Peter Capaldi, of course, at the moment, and, and that lovely girl, the gorgeous face she's got. I mean, what, what could be nicer? And the effects are so much better. Uh, so, and, and they're longer too. The episodes, aren't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, the 50, 50 minutes. It's, it's, it's always 30. Yeah. yeah. So that would be my message <laughs> <laughs> to the faithful: expand your horizons. Uh, well, uh, you've expanded ours over the course of this conversation. Fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Michael Kilgarrett, thank you very much. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thank you. I hope that was okay for you. Yeah, yeah that would be fine. It's this, um... <laughs> Honestly, when we started our interview, there was nobody in that cafe and it was quiet and they started playing some music and we said, oh, we're doing an interview, would you mind if the music wasn't too loud? And they were like, fine. So they were obviously fine with us being there and fine with us doing an interview. And then they started cleaning the cappuccino machine. And then the people with the baby came in. And then by the end of it, it sounds like a spaceship's landed outside. I don't know what that throbbing was. Um, clearly, it was the aliens wiped my mind of the situation. They haven't wiped my mind, however, of Michael's charity, which is, uh, well, it's often chosen, and rightly so, the Actors Benevolent Fund. Actors Benevolent Fund, which is uh, actorsbenevolentfund.co.uk, www.actorsbenevolentfund, all one word, .co.uk. I've just actually had um, their sheet from them where they um, advertise their Christmas cards, um, which are often rather lovely. Uh, Edward D'Souza did some a couple of years ago. Um, none by Who Luminaries this year, um, but uh, if you're wondering where to get Christmas cards from this year, they are a good place, uh, reasonably priced, and uh, it all goes to the charity. Um, my play, Grand Designs of the Third Kind, was on BBC Radio 4 uh, the Monday before the release of this podcast. Oh no, you missed it. Well, you have no excuse not to listen because it's on iPlayer, uh, Grand Designs of the Third Kind. It was on at 2.15pm on Monday the 4th of September. But uh, you'll find it if you search Grand Designs of the Third Kind and uh, have a listen on iPlayer. I'd be grateful if you did. It's quite jolly. Uh, and it has John Joe O'Neill in it too, was a Who's Round E and was in the 50th anniversary uh, episode of Doctor Who. Um, and it's got Office Crabtree from a lower low in it too. Um, and I might have a few Doctor Who references in. Who knows? Anyway, thanks to Michael. Thanks to you for listening. More Who's Round next week. Um, uh, in the meantime, chatty bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Mrs. Clark, Mrs. Ramon, and... <clears throat> 
the doctor. Very discreet. Thank you. This is asking for trouble. Doctor Who, the behemoth. Theodosia, might I have the honor? Oh, sir, you may indeed. Good grief. He's rather covered. Goreme. Goreme. Are you there? They're hunting me. They have taken him away because they are our masters. England should be ashamed. And one day your filthy trade will be swept away. Utter one word and I'll have him flocked to death. And you too. Get off me! Get off! Let me out! Let me out! Doctor! It is there. The dragon. Finish. We love stories. You destroyed my foundry. Oh, a big explosion can be hugely satisfying. <laughs>